Well, I hope you did your homework. It was assigned two weeks ago. I won't ask for anybody to raise their hand. I'll just read the expressions on your faces. We come to Genesis 49 and 50, last two chapters uh, in the opening book of the scriptures. The word Genesis literally means beginning. It's the beginning. And today we come to the end of the beginning. We come to the end of this opening book in God's word. But it's also the end of the beginning in a much more significant way. Because now, throughout the rest of scripture, based upon God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to say nothing about Noah and Adam, God's promises to his people, we have the unfolding of the history of Israel, the unfolding of the history of God's people. It's a terribly mixed history. We don't have time to go into all of that, but it's a history of ups and terrible, terrible downs. Um, but through it all, the Lord will accomplish his salvific purpose, which we begin to uh, celebrate in a formal way next week as we enter into the Advent season to celebrate the coming of the Lord's promised Redeemer, the coming of the Christ. So one last time, as I've done before, and if you haven't been here before, I just want to explain. I love the scriptures. I'm not going to read directly this morning all of Genesis 49 and 50. Um, and as some of you know, because of the wonderful opportunity that you had last week, um, some of you may realize this was supposed to be two sermons. Uh, but now it'll be one sermon twice as long. <laughs> no, 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 it won't be. It, it'll still be just one sermon, but it will pack together uh, a whole lot of stuff. So let's pray and we'll look together beginning in Genesis 49. So Father, be with us now. We're here to uh, look at your word and to try to uh, gain a handle on what it would teach us, what it has to say to us. Um, Father, lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've mentioned before to you that my dad is my hero. He continues to be, uh, I continue to be blessed by him uh, because of the way he lived his sure and confident faith before me. Um, but I'm also, um, I, I'm also, I also continue to, to be blessed by, he, by how he lovingly corrected and disciplined me. Long ago, <clears throat> I tried to figure out how many years ago, I think it's 56 years ago. 56 years ago, give or take a year, he watched my team lose an important game and me lose my cool. I threw my glove down I stomped off the field. I found a few bats to fling into the air. I was not a happy camper. So as we drove home, Dad asked me, son, what in the world is the matter with you? 
Now, you have to know my dad. Never, had, never got higher than a third grade education, but was one of the wisest men I ever knew. But he also served in the armed forces for almost eight years, and he believed in direct confrontation. <laughs> my father said, what in the world is the matter with you, boy? And I, you know, okay, you teenagers are going to relate to this. I shrugged my shoulders, sort of threw my hands up in the air, and I said, well, Dad, I don't know. I just can't control my temper. His response? Well, to make it acceptable for all of you, Dad said, baloney. <laughs> That's not what he said. <laughs> Dad said, baloney. You lose your temper because you want to lose your temper. Let me tell you something. His rebuke continues to bless me. It continues to bless me. Dad was lovingly teaching me to get myself under control. And I've always struggled to keep myself under control. And as I've struggled, Dad's, Dad's words have continually been there in my ears. Well, here in Jacob 40, here in, I'm sorry, Genesis 49, Jacob, who is in the role of, of Israel, the bearer of God's covenant promises, Jacob blesses his sons by telling them, you'll note, what shall happen to them in the future. Now, we can't deal with all of this, but if you read through this, some of what he says sounds pretty negative. He's going to use words of rebuke. He's going to use words of correction. He's going to use words of warning. But, but look, at, um, look at chapter 49, verse 28. In chapter 49, verse 28, you're told that Jacob blessed each and every one of his sons by telling them what they needed to hear. My dad frequently blessed me by telling me what I needed to hear. Now, for example, as far as the harshness is concerned, look at verses 3 through 7. Jacob's blessing of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, wow, it's not what I would call a blessing. It's not what I think of. I think of blessing in positive terms. But here, Jacob, for example, blesses Reuben, his firstborn, by telling him that while he should have been preeminent in dignity and power, he won't be because he is unstable in all his ways. And indeed he was. Reuben, <clears throat> Reuben had in the past been, been guilty of incest. And throughout Old Testament history, the tribe of Reuben, seldom mentioned, of little importance, Jacob goes on, he calls Simeon and Levi weapons of violence. And they were. Uh, they murdered. They were murderers. They murdered many of the citizens of Shechem and abused their cattle and oxen because one of the citizens of Shechem had raped their sister. They were violent men. And Jacob says that no one 
should ever look to them for advice and wisdom. And in verse 7, he foresees them being scattered among the tribes of Israel. And in future days, the tribe of Simeon will be absorbed into the tribe of Judah, and the descendants of Levi will live in cities scattered among the 12 tribes. Now, my dad's words ring in my ears. I, I just wonder how often these descendants remembered Jacob's words to their forefathers. You children, you listen to me. Children, listen to me. Remember what your parents lovingly correct. Remember when they lovingly correct and discipline you. Remember what they have to say to you, even if at that moment you think it's just a little bit over the top. I assure you, by God's grace, one day you'll be grateful they did. And I'm grateful to tell you that of these three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, I know that the descendants of Levi took to heart Jacob's words. Because in the future, these men who at that moment Jacob referred to as men of violence, that no one should look to for advice or counsel, the descendants of Levi demonstrate and prove their faithfulness to the Lord, and he chooses them to be the tribe from which comes his priests and his deacons. Now, for the sake of time, we have to skip Jacob's blessings of the remaining sons, except for Judah and Joseph. Um, we just don't have the time. But I do want you to look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. Because in verse 18, Jacob expresses his faith in the Lord's promise to graciously, to graciously bestow on Jacob's children, even Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, to bestow on them the gift of salvation, to bestow on them the gift of salvation despite their weaknesses, their inconsistencies, and their sin. And that's why we call it grace. That's why we call it good news. The Lord doesn't love and save us because we deserve to be loved or saved, just as the Israelites didn't deserve to be loved or saved. It's for the sake of his glory. And he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. Now, now look, look at verses 8 through 12. Look at verses 8 through 12. Here Jacob wonderfully blesses Judah. And if you've been... If you followed me as we've gone through Genesis 37 through 50, that's got to be at least somewhat surprising, that this incredible blessing of Judah. I mean, Judah's the one who instigated the sale of Joseph into slavery. Judah's the one who, against the Lord's command and his father's wishes, married a Canaanite. And Judas is the one, uh, Judah is the one who committed incest. But that's why we call it grace. Because by God's grace, Judah's heart is so changed that he becomes, as I've told you, the first man in Scripture to offer up his life for another when he asks to become the slave of 
Egypt's prime minister, which is his brother Joseph, but he doesn't know who he is. Judah asks, let me be your slave in place of my brother Benjamin, whom if my father loses, it'll kill my father. Now, as Jacob blesses him, he foresees Judah being praised and honored by his brothers. His descendants will be like a lion's cub. And throughout Israel's history, it's the tribe of Judah who will often lead Israel into battle against their enemies. But even more significantly, Jacob foresees that from Judah will come one to whom the scepter, to whom the ruler's staff belongs. Jacob says to this one, all tribute will be brought. The nations will prove obedient. And then in the cultural terms of that day, he, he pictures this one as so richly blessed that he can tie his, his foal, his, his colt, to an expensive grapevine, which he just wouldn't do. That grapevine's worth a lot. You don't just tie up an animal to a grapevine. But he's so rich, he could tie up his, his colt to an expensive grapevine and soak his garments in the wine as he trampled upon the grapes. And Jacob says, Judah will be of such character that his brothers will find him strikingly attractive. And so it was. 800 years later, the Lord calls David of the tribe of Judah to serve as Israel's king. And then a thousand years after David's day, Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah. And in Revelation 5, verse 5, he is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. As king of kings, he will defeat his people's final enemy. For as Jacob prays in verse 18, he will be the bearer of salvation. He is the one to whom all tribute is brought and all nations obey because one day before him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now look at verses 22 through 26. Here Jacob blesses Joseph. And by the way, just, it's interesting, and I might want to make too much of it, but just note that 10 of the 25 verses of blessing, 10 of the 25 verses focus on Judah and Joseph. Now, remember, as we've talked about, as Jacob blesses Joseph, he's blessing the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which are Joseph's two sons that have been adopted by Jacob. So through Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph is pictured as being so fruitful, his, his vine stretches out over the wall to, to, to conquer even more territories. Look at verse 23, you're told that he'll be attacked and harassed as was Joseph by his brothers, as Jesus will be. But by the help of the mighty one of Jacob, the good shepherd, the rock, he proves victorious and is richly blessed with fertile fields and, and many offspring. Jacob says that to Joseph, it's kind of a peculiar expression, it doesn't immediately ring 
clear to us. He says that to Joseph will come the blessing of the everlasting hills. But if you looked at Deuteronomy 33.15, Deuteronomy 33.15, you'll learn that what Jacob is promising is that Joseph's descendants will possess the finest products of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills. And it's a blessing so overwhelming that it sets him apart from his brothers, even as the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim were preeminent uh, in the history of Israel. Now, this is the bottom line. This is the bottom line, okay? God will graciously work in and through these brothers. Despite their weaknesses and their sins, despite despite the fact that at the moment that Jacob, think about this, at the moment Jacob blesses them, they are few in number and they are of very little significance. Yet it will be in and through them that the Lord will bring to fruition his promised salvation. As Jesus told the woman at the well, salvation comes through the descendants of Jacob. And Paul tells us in Romans 9, 5, that it is from this race that the Christ will come, who is God over all. I should encourage you. I don't know what you think about Old Testament Israel. I don't know what you think. But they're a mess. I mean, just read the Old Testament. They're a mess. They may be as big a mess as we are. They're a mess. But it's in and through them, despite their inconsistencies, their sins, and their weaknesses, that the Lord accomplishes his purpose. He must discipline them. He must bring upon them some harsh judgments. But he will not let them go. And through them, comes the Christ. Now look at chapter 49, verses 28 through chapter 50, verse 14. In verses 29 through 32, Jacob lies dying, and he instructs his sons, you bury me in Canaan in the cave purchased by Abraham. I mean, Jacob is determined that his burial will remind his family that they are but sojourners in the land of Egypt. And one day the Lord will bring them up out of Egypt and restore them to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 33, Jacob dies, and we're told he's gathered to his people. I love that statement. <laughs> I just love that statement. He is gathered to his people. The Lord delays his coming. I look forward to being gathered to my people, of meeting again, or meeting for the first time, family and, and friends who now live in the presence of the Lord. Now look at chapter 50, verses 1 through 14. Joseph weeps over his departed father. He kisses him. He orders him embalmed to preserve his body for burial in Canaan. The embalming took 40 days. For 70 days, 
the Egyptians mourn Jacob's passing. Now that's significant because that's a span of time usually reserved in Egyptian culture for the mourning of a king. The Egyptians, we're told, despise shepherds, they despise foreigners. Jacob is a shepherd, he's a foreigner. And yet, Egypt now bestows upon him the highest of honors. When the time of mourning ends, Joseph asks Pharaoh for permission to bury his father in Canaan. Pharaoh both grants Joseph permission and he doesn't just simply grant permission. He orders a great assemblage of important political and military leaders to accompany Joseph back to Canaan. And so along with Joseph's and his brother's households, all these people journey to Canaan. Only the children, and I assume their mothers, remain in Egypt. And having arrived at the Jordan, they mourn for another seven days. The inhabitants of that region, by the way, are so awed by all that they're seeing and hearing that they rename the place Abel Mizraim, which literally means the mourning of Egypt. Not the sun coming up, the mourning, the weeping of Egypt. Then they all cross the Jordan. They enter Canaan. They bury Jacob in Abraham's cave. Don't you just get a little sense of the future in all this? They cross the Jordan. They enter Canaan. Just as one day, hundreds of years later, the descendants of Jacob will in mass cross the Jordan and enter the promised land. Well, having buried Jacob, they all return to Egypt. Look at verses 50, 15 through 21. Now that their father's dead and perhaps can no longer protect them, Joseph's brothers fear that he's going to mistreat them. So they go to Joseph and they insist that their father told them to ask him to forgive the evil ways they treated him. I don't know what to make of that, okay? I don't know if Jacob told them to do that. The brothers say he did, but I don't know whether or not Jacob so mistrusted Joseph that he would instruct his sons to approach him in this particular manner. But anyway, here are the brothers, and we'll just give them, you know, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And they're insisting. Dad said, you're to forgive us because of, to forgive all the evil ways that, that we treated you. Now, wonderfully, I mean, it's the first time they fully own their sins, and that's good. But Joseph weeps because they distrust him. The brothers even go so far as to offer to become Joseph's slaves in exchange for their lives. But with great faith in God's sovereign purposes, Joseph, the one whom they have wickedly mistreated, Joseph says to them, 
do not fear. For am I in the place of God? I know. I know you did what you did with evil intentions to harm me. Now listen to that. I know. I know you did what you did with evil intentions to harm me. But God, God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be alive as they are today. So my nephew is in the hospital in Asheville and he has a cancerous brain tumor. He's 35 years old and humanly speaking, he won't live long. My sister, his mother, sitting has taken him to get treatment. His wife's working. And as they, she's talking with a man who's also waiting, an older man, closer to my age, who's waiting to have treatment. And as my nephew comes out of, out of, his, out of the place where he was being treated, this older man looks at him and turns to my sister and says, he's so young. Well, Stuart, my nephew, hears the man's comment. And Stuart says, hey, I'm in the Lord's hands. His will be done. And the response of that individual was to get up out of his seat and walk to the other side of the room. What you believe the world thinks ridiculous. What Joseph says here, most would find absurd. I know you meant it for evil, but you don't need to fear me because the Lord meant it for good. He meant it for the good of bringing about the idea that many people should be kept alive as they are even to this day because of all Joseph's preparations for the famine. Joseph calls upon them again not to fear him. He assures them he will continue to provide for them and their little ones. And in verse 21, you're told Joseph's words comfort his brother. Let's look at verse 21. You're told that Joseph's words comfort his brother. Literally in the Hebrew, that says that Joseph's words spoke to their hearts. Spoke to their hearts. Well, that brings us to the closing of Genesis. We're told Joseph lives to be 110 years old, which was considered by Egyptians to be an ideal age. I'm not sure that being 110 seems to me to be an ideal situation. But in any way, Joseph uh, is blessed by the Lord. He sees his children's children's children. He then adopts Make her one of Manasseh's sons as his own. That's an interesting little insert right there. I'm not sure exactly why, but I do know, for example, though, that make her literally means one who is sold. One who is sold. So perhaps it's a, simply an appropriate reminder of his grandfather's story. But just before he dies, Joseph reminds his brothers that God will visit you to bring you up out of Egypt to the land promised now look at this. To the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that's a familiar 
phrase to you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what I want you to appreciate. This is the first time in scripture where those three patriarchs are listed together. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In effect, for me, it summarizes Genesis' focus on the Lord's covenant promises to these men whose stories, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, consume 39 of Genesis' 50 chapters. Well, in light of God's promise, Joseph instructs his brother to carry his body out of Egypt, bury him in the promised land. So Joseph's body is embalmed and preserved for the day when his request will be fulfilled. Do you know when his request was fulfilled? 400 years later. 400 years later. You read in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 19 that 400 years later, as the children of Israel exodus Egypt, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. So the words of Jacob, the words of Joseph, they're still ringing in somebody's ears. Now, as I said at the beginning, the book of Genesis is literally the book of beginning. In truth, it's the end of the beginning. It's the end of the beginning of Israel's history preserved for you in the Old Testament, which prepares the way for the coming of Jesus and as I've said, despite Israel's many failures and sins, through them will come Jesus, your creator, savior, Lord, and king. And as Joseph testifies, the Lord, here in the Old Testament, is clearly, sovereignly at work in the life of his people, just as he is in your life. And for you today, for you, this day, this day may well be the end of the beginning. The end of one moment in your history, of one time of leadership and ministry. And if the Lord so wills, the Lord so wills. The beginning of a new moment in your history. The beginning of a new time of leadership and ministry. And therefore, let me pray for you as I close our study of these final chapters of Genesis. Chapters that are the end of the beginning of the unfolding of the Lord's purposes. The Lord's purposes for you as individuals, as families, and as a church. Remember, he loves you with a love that will never let you go. He is with you both now and for forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the examples that you give to us in Holy Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement of knowing that you are sovereignly at work in the life of your people because you choose to be sovereignly at work in the life of your people and that you are at work in them for the sake of your glory and for their temporal and eternal welfare as well as the temporal and eternal welfare of those before whom they serve you 
as your witnesses. Hear these, our prayers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.